Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, how are you? I am terrific, Eric. How are you today? I got a little frog in my throat, Barbara. Do you? <laughs> Get him out of there, would you? (laughs) It's a little earlier than we record normally, and maybe my body just hasn't adjusted, but I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be back with you. Well, I'm excited to see you again. And Eric, we are going to talk today about dealing with dyslexia. Oh, that's fantastic. You have tremendous experience besides being a dad, working with boys and young men in a community home. When you see kids acting out, have you ever considered they could be frustrated or maybe just embarrassed at school due to reading struggles? Absolutely. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, yeah. And that's part of our training. And that ah. actually happens quite often. So it's when we have school behaviors, a lot of times it's due to embarrassment, due to either a deficiency in some sort of skill or area. And a lot of times it has to do with reading because they're embarrassed that they can't read as fluently as some of the other kids in class. And if they're asked to read, I've had kids just get up and flip a desk over because they're so embarrassed. They would rather be removed from the classroom than actually read. Oh, that's so sad. Well, I just learned that about 20% of our population is affected by dyslexia. Did you know that? 20%? I I did not know it was that high. No. Well, and for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a specific learning disability that originates in the brain. So it sounds like you have mentored some children with dyslexia. So... Maybe this will help if you think about it, because I discovered many famous folks who overcame dyslexia and had successful lives like Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Picasso. How about that? Wow. How about more currently, Steven Spielberg, Cher, Octavia Spencer, or Anderson Cooper? (laughs) I was surprised. I I didn't know he was on the list. Well, and how about this comment from Richard Branson, who does, he is... He has dyslexia, but he says it is not a disadvantage. It is merely a different way of thinking. I like that. I do too. So Eric, our guest today, Dr. Rebecca Tolson, will support us in understanding more about dyslexia and how we can champion students to embrace their differences and to thrive. So as you listen to our conversation, Consider what you've noticed in your boys and what they're experiencing, this kind of a challenge, and weigh in with us later, and you can have some questions for Rebecca as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Well, let me introduce you to Rebecca Tolson. She has a PhD in elementary education from the University of Akron and is a member of the Academic Therapy Association at the level of Qualified Instructor and Certified Academic Language Therapist and a Certified Dyslexia Therapist through the International Dyslexia Association. 
Rebecca began her career in education as a fifth grade teacher and later transitioned to teaching both children and adults with learning disabilities. She specializes in using structured literacy techniques as intervention for dyslexia and dysgraphia, which we'll have to ask her about that. Tolson teaches as an adjunct professor for Walsh University in the Masters of Dyslexia Therapy Program and chairs the Ohio Dyslexia Committee and serves on the Ohio Dyslexia Legislation Committee. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Barbara. Good to be here. Well, I'm just so delighted to have you share so much of your knowledge with us. And I want to start with your 20-year journey. You started as a fifth grade teacher and now you're the professional today teaching others to teach. So can you take us through that journey, please? Yes, absolutely. So I actually, this is my 32nd year in education, about 20, a little over 20 of it is, has been devoted to dyslexia. So I started oh. out, I feel like it's a gift. I started out as a regular ed teacher right out of college, got my first teaching job and I was ready to change the world and didn't realize that fifth graders can come to fifth grade not being able to read well. And mm. I don't remember ever learning how to teach reading in my undergraduate studies. So I I was like a deer in headlights. My toolbox was really empty. I'm like, how do I help these fifth graders that are struggling? And so when they would want to, they, the kids would, out loud, the kids would snicker and it broke my heart. Oh, I mean, I'm so like, sad. Oh my goodness. And I'm like, so I didn't even know that literacy was going to be my passion until I realized in the classroom, my heart just broke for these kids. So I started taking and literacy reading classes, anything I could get my hands on how to teach reading. And I took my first structure literacy course, which was an Orton Gillingham course. And I was hooked. I had no idea how reading develops. And I loved every minute of it. And every student I worked with was different and unique. And they had different profiles and different challenges. But each one of them, even with severe reading disabilities, could learn how to read, write, and spell. So it just took patience. Some of them, five, six years of really hard work on their part and my part, right? And the parents' part. Mm. But I ended up being able to... So I started a tutoring business and I started doing consulting and I just, my whole, and then I, I do higher education training teachers. So, I mean, that about 2013 was when I started training teachers. Cause I realized teachers are hungry to know this. Yeah. Teachers they didn't want, have, they, so you're providing them the resource you didn't have. How wonderful to have found right. that passion so young. Yeah. So that's really, that's how it began. Do you still teach? those with learning disabilities or are you still so or just teaching teachers today? So I do higher education. I'm more, I'm, I spend my time teaching teachers, but every now and then during, I got to tell you, Barbara, I stopped working with students probably in when, in my transition, probably 2012, 2013, but over COVID, I started thinking, oh my goodness, as teachers were teaching online, I was like, does this work? In structured literacy, does this work for students with dyslexia on the computer? So I might had a niece and a nephew that was struggling and they live, one lives in Indiana, I live in Ohio, and one lives two hours from me in Ohio. And so I said, let me work with them on the computer. So oh. I did, I tutored a family member, two family members, one in first grade, one in third grade over the computer. 
and they were behind in reading. It was so amazing, rewarding. I loved it. And we got them going on their route. And now my, my niece is getting straight A's in school doing fine. And I just, so, and then I might be this summer. I got another family member that reached out for a little one they're worried about and said, would you work with her? And I'm like, sure. So isn't that wonderful? You're so admired to be able to do this. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, can you define dyslexia for us? Absolutely. So dyslexia is a specific learning disability. So it's under the category of what they would call SLD in basic reading skills. And what what were those initials? SLD, specific learning disability, SLD. It's a category under IDEA, which is our big umbrella of where kiddos can qualify for special services. So it's a specific learning disability that is neurobiological. So that means that it's in the brain. Okay. So the, how the brain processes language, it's neurobiological. It's not about lack of motivation. It's not about lack of instruction. It's in, it's how that child processes language, written, written language. It is a, a core deficit in the phonological components of language. So it's about the sounds and processing the sound layer. And so it's a myth to say that kiddos reverse letters because that's not what dyslexia is. Actually, Samuel Orton back in the day, he was one of our founding, he is the founding member of Orton-Gillingham methodology. And he hypothesized that this is what kids were doing that came with this profile of reading issues. And he published it in a journal. And that, and then he quickly said, nope, it's not about reversing letters. It's about the sound processing system, phonological system. And so, but that myth carried on, his hypothesis carried on even today. Well, it's a myth. That's what I thought it was. So you're, you're right. It's a myth. So it's the sounds and not the letters. It's a deficit in the phonological, the sound of processing. So when a, a kiddo, so we'll talk about that on some early signs, but Kids that have dyslexia, so it's also in part of the definition of dyslexia is they have inaccurate, non-fluent word recognition. So in other words, when they're inaccurate, they make errors. They have, they have, sometimes have insertions, omissions, transpositions. Occasionally they'll have a reversal, but when they're reading and processing, they're going to make errors and it's going to affect their fluency. So they're going to be slow and choppy. When they're reading, they're not going to read at a rate that supports their comprehension. So Mm. a secondary consequence of dyslexia, not a primary. I always like to really emphasize that primary is their weak decoders. Okay. They can't read the words accurately and fluently on grade level, but secondary consequence, it will impede their vocabulary and their comprehension because they're not reading and they're not growing at a rate of their peers because that's how you b- build your vocabulary. And at a certain point, it's through reading and they read less. So their comprehension will be impeded as a secondary. So it's interesting. If, mm-hmm. if well, a kiddo, oh, go ahead, Barbara. No, I, well, I want you to add in your introduction, I mentioned dysgraphia. So I, I'd like you to insert a little bit about that as well. Oh, that's my, uh, well, it's my specialty. I love, I love working okay. with kiddos that are graphic, just graphic. They're harder. I love a challenge, Barbara. 
they're harder to remediate when they have the dysgraphia and the dyslexia together. You okay, can have well, I, them. I took you off path there. I'm sorry. I was just so curious about it. No, you can the have them. You can have them together or separate. So a kiddo can be dysgraphic without dyslexia, but they also can have them. They run together as a comorbid. In other words, they run together often. So dysgraphia affects the graphomotor, the actual writing, the physical act of handwriting. So dysgraphia is about writing it down, getting it down on paper. And so it can have to do with those graphomotor. And a lot of kids just with dysgraphia have a hard time putting it down on paper from the brain down through the hand onto the paper. Dyslexia mm -hmm. is about lifting it from the paper and getting it out and reading it and speaking it. Wow. So they can have one or the other. You could be mm -hmm. be suffering from dyslexia or mm -hmm. dysgraphia or both. That's right. Okay. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, and, and I'm still absolutely. surprised that it's about the sounds as opposed to inverted letters. So that myth, you're right, it still is rampant right. today. That's right. Thank you. That's right. You're welcome. So so I need to understand how early it can be diagnosed and who can help do so. Some of the early signs, anything you can help us, because it sounds like when you mentioned fifth grade and kids couldn't read, if we could get to them sooner, they might, might make it a little easier for them. That's right. Well, and I'm a believer in a preventative model, which means if we can identify kids early, anywhere usually between ages four to seven, somewhere in that range, we can we have some early screeners that show us that there are flags or signs of, of dyslexia early. So I want to differentiate between identifying dyslexia and diagnosing dyslexia. So you can identify through a screener that there's a potential issue or problem. And if we identify and we intervene early, we can teach them and we actually can keep them on track because we know what to address early. So some of the early signs to look for, we have some early screeners that will do that for us. These kiddos will be late talkers. They will, they will struggle learning their letters and sounds. They will struggle rhyming. They will struggle manipulating sounds and all of those. So kiddos that can manipulate, like, let me say, if I say the word cat to you and I work with even a kindergarten, I say, say the word cat without the k. They can say at. They can manipulate the sounds without seeing any letters. They can manipulate the sounds and take a sound off, put a sound in. They can move sounds around, all sound play. And kids, and typical learners, kiddos can do that. They can rhyme, they can segment, they can blend sounds. Well, those are really strong indicators of reading. So once you add the symbols and the letters to those sounds, kiddos take off. They realize hmm. the, this is how symbols work in English. So they do need to know letter names. So anytime a kiddo or a, a early learner, a child in maybe pre-K or K, does struggle learning the letter names, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to intensify my instruction. I'm going to practice more. I'm going to teach them directly. Some kiddos, you give them all 26 letters and they just, they're like they're natural readers. Not many kids 
can do it without direct instruction, believe it or not. Most kids need to be taught how all kids need to be taught how to read. Very few can learn intuitively. So we need to be teaching that directly to all kiddos early on. So those are some of the early, another early sign is writing their name. So if kids, kids need to be able to, to write their name. And if they're struggling using those letters and getting them down in their name, they're going to struggle with other words and letters. So that's and another. How now, early, how early should we be working with children to write their name or to go over oh, their letters? Yes, I would start somewhere. I mean, you've got your preschool. I'm an advocate of preschool. So three and four, you should be working on that because reading readiness is being ready to read are those precursor skills, oral language, letter recognition, and phonological awareness, sound play, that rhyming sound work. All three of those are readiness skills. You can start working on that at three, three years old, three and four, pre-K. Okay. And then also in kindergarten. So by, I'll give you my benchmark by second semester kindergarten, that's January kindergarten. Kiddos need to know all their letter names and all the sounds that match those letter names. And they should be able to put together just basic three letter words, CBC words. That happens in typicals, majority of kids. So if they're not doing that by January of kindergarten, we need to screen, intervene, and that's where we want to start. Okay, most kids are ready to read. So now we might want to do some more structured. Instead of screeners, we might want to go into some assessments, some diagnostic assessments to say, is there something going on? Okay, so I, I just want to clarify. So screeners, they would be able to say there is they're lagging in learning the sounds or they're having difficulty in grasping the letters or they're not rhyming. So those can be done in a, as a screening technique. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, that's what you're okay. hearing. And think of it like a temperature check. Like I'm just going to do a quick screener. So think if you go to your doctor and they're screening you for heart disease, right? They're right. going to do some quick tests in the office. They're not going to give you a full battery just right. to see if you're at risk, they're going to do some quick tests. That's exactly what we do for reading. And then, so now let's go to the diagnostic test. Mm. So now explain what's the next step. So, so there, there if, may be a problem. Now we're going to see if there is truly one or not. So we have what we call universal screeners and universal screeners just basically categorize kiddos risk and no risk. Those are those quick screeners. If okay. the kids are at risk, I'm going to find out what area they're at risk. So I'm going to do what they call a diagnostic screener. What's going to give me the area that they're weak in. Do they do I'm, this in schools now? They do. So in most schools. Okay. Thank you. And according to Ohio and many states, those, th that is based on around policy. We have a law in Ohio that says that, that school districts need to do a universal screener for dyslexia. Every school, every district, every child. And, and then, at what age do they do that? In kindergarten or first it's K, grade? yes. The okay. law is K to three, kindergarten right. through third grade. Thank and you. so after we, we need to find out if they're at risk, what area they're at risk in. And then, so we do what we call a diagnostic screener, which is a, it, it's a little more in detail in depth. So it guides my instruction. It knows, do I need to instruct with the letters, the sounds? Do I need to instruct with oral language? 
And so I, after I do that, I do a little beefier, a little more information and I teach. Instruction's the most important thing. You can't, you won't know unless you give them really explicit systematic instructions. So then if I progress monitor my teaching and every, we say every about two weeks, I give them a, another quick assessment. Are they learning what I'm teaching them? At that point, if I'm still, after they've had good instruction, good progress monitoring, if they're still showing lack of progress and mastery, then I go and I can refer them to an assess, a full battery assessment, which would be very diagnostic. And that okay. you can do in the schools as well. Oh, so that's done right within the schools, not yep. outside somewhere else that, I, so, who, so do we ask our teachers if the, if a parent recognizes some of the things you're saying, do they bring that up to the teacher early on and ask the teacher to be aware and, exactly and express, right. express their concern? That's exactly right. The parent should absolutely. And I always say a parent has that gut. I always always say when I met with the parents, the parents were almost, I, I, they're always right. They have a gut <laughs> feeling. They have a gut feeling. They're like, yeah, something's not right. They might not know what it is, but they know something's off. And so it's like the parents know and the parents sense it. So the parents should share that. This is a team effort between the parents, the school and the child. This is, and the whole community comes around. This is the whole child. And so we have to look at every angle and the parent is a very important piece of that. So share with the teacher and the teacher should be trained to recognize those characteristics, those early signs. They don't necessarily need to be the expert specialist in it, but they need to know the signs to get them in the right direction. So since we're talking about parents, I have to ask, is it hereditary? If a parent has struggled in learning, is that, does it come down to the children or is it something that's just one and done. It is heritable. Yes. Okay. It runs All in right. families. It does run in families. And I know that it says, I have a statistic that says 40% of siblings of kids with dyslexia have reading dis difficulties. 40%. Of siblings? Uh-huh. Of wow. siblings. Of okay. kids. So you, if you think about that, and I used, I mean, I've taught entire families, like, three, four of one family. And that's just because it's like, oh, the next one's coming up, struggling, get them in with Dr. Tolson. Oh, the next one's showing signs. And it some don't, some do, but 40% is the Okay, statistic. so if a parent has struggled with reading in the past, they really have to be aware and they can be earlier, perhaps. That's right. Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to Hightower's Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast. But if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to HightowerAdvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara. And so you mentioned structural learning. Can you tell us how dyslexia is treated or managed? So what yes, are the absolutely. actual ways of doing this? So structured literacy is the method. 
And it's how we teach children with dyslexia, but all kids benefit from structured literacy. All kids, a structured systematic. So there's a scope and sequence that it's how it's taught, a scope and sequence of the language, all letter sounds, correspondences, and reading concepts, and syllable types, and all the parts of words that you would teach. Um, intro to advanced are taught in a systematic way. That is teaching the language through a scope and sequence. So it's very different than your basal reading programs that have stories for kids to read and comprehension questions. This is teaching how to decode and understand the language in a systematic way. Okay, so we want that instruction, how the instruction taught to be systematic, cumulative, explicit, and direct, so that okay. there isn't holes and gaps in the children's understanding. It's driven by data and mastery. So once I, so I, let's say I teach 25 concepts of how the language works. I teach them those reading concepts, and then I do a quick assessment to say it's mastery. And then that tells me what to do. Do I keep going when my teaching or do I review, reteach because my kids haven't mastered? And that's how structured literacy works. It's about the students mastery so they can build their level of concepts with reading and writing and spelling the language. Also, it's what we teach. Structured literacy is about teaching the ingredients of language. So in other words, the ingredients of language we teach in a structured literacy program, phonology, the sound layer, orthography is the written language, it's our spelling system. We have semantics, which is our vocabulary word meanings. We have pragmatics, our social use of language. So kiddos can understand language in a figurative way, like idioms and metaphors and similes. So if we have all of those components of language ingredients, that's what we teach in a structured literacy program. So we're empowering them to use oral and written language as a communication tool. So, and the vocabulary, that's interesting. And, and so mm -hmm. if someone has dyslexia, do they mm -hmm. have more difficulty even hearing conversations or is it only the written word? Well, that's a good question. So the phonological part isn't hearing, it's processing okay. sounds. So they hear like we hear. However, you bring up a really good point. Kids with dyslexia often qualify for speech language services because the language that they're learning is blocked or it, they've got issues with processing language. So a lot of times I would work very closely with the speech language pathologist on, they were working on the language piece from that language, from speech and understanding. And I was working on the reading literacy piece of it. So there's a lot of connection between that. It's not about hearing, it's about processing the sound layers to be a reader or a writer. So, you know, it's interesting, you're talking about the letters. And I think about when my children were younger, they went to Montessori school and there were sandpaper letters or there were different feels of the letters and they would actually touch the letters, you know, when they were very young. So it's fascinating to hear, you know, using all the different senses and working 
with, well, hearing, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. that's a challenge. So mm-hmm. if with the reading and we know children can feel uncomfortable or embarrassed in a classroom, or if they're having a little bit of a challenge processing a conversation, what are the social emotional concerns we should be concerned about our kids experiencing and how can we help them embrace their talents as opposed to being so self-critical? Yeah, that's a good question. So in my experience in the research that I've read on this topic, the main concerns for children with learning disabilities in general, including dyslexia, is anxiety and depression. Mm. And I just want to, with my experience, I know it's really important for us as adults to build that child up. Everybody struggles with something. It's not like everybody can do everything perfectly. For so sure. They need to, they need to know that they need to know. So when I would, when I teach students with dyslexia, I always share with them my strengths and weaknesses. So they realize I'm human and we all struggle, but they also need to have, they need to have empathy from us on how hard it really is. There's a, and this is something we could put in the notes, Barbara, and the resources, there's a dyslexia simulation that the Ohio, the Northern Ohio branch of the International Dyslexia Association does on an annual basis. And it's about a two hour event. And it's called, it's like walking in the shoes of a dyslexic. It's Hmm. you sit and you go through stations simulating what it's like to be in school all day with a brain that has, you know, the processing, the language of a child with dyslexia. So that event, we'll have to link that as a resource because that Absolutely. would be, I feel like every educator, every parent should do that. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's just simulated as if you were sitting in, in their bodies and as that's a student right. in school, gosh, that's creative. And we barely have a dry eye leaving that event because they realize this that the children are trying really, really hard and they're tired and it takes a lot more energy to do what they're doing. And so when I work with students, it was like the student would come into my office and I represented everything, seeing my face represented everything hard for them. So I'm saying, sit here with me for an hour and do the hardest thing for you. And that's reading or writing or spelling sit here for an hour with me. But what I had to do was build trust that we're going to do this together. And I'm going to break this into parts that are manageable. And I'll never forget Barbara to tell a story. I had a little second grader one time and the mom called me on her way home after picking him up from school in tears. And she said, he got into the car and it was a Catholic school. And he said, mommy, when am I going to read, be able to read prayers like my friends. Oh my golly. Oh, and she's so like, touching. She's like, Rebecca, he can't read. I mean, and he's in second grade. I don't know what to do. So I said, let me start working. With, let me do an assessment or whatever. So I did my pre-assessment and I looked at him and said, so I go in there and I decide, mm-hmm. oh, he, he's going to be just fine. We're, we've got, I'm going to teach him to read. Well, first me first session with this little guy. And he said, you're not going to teach me how to read. You're my third tutor. This isn't going to work. Oh no. Poor little guy. 
And that's oh, where the social, that's that social emotional. So think about it took me just months of trust to say what I'm doing is going to work. This effort you're putting in every time I come here, it's worth it because you're going to be a reader. So there's a lot that teachers have to do when kids feel anxiety and depression and low self-esteem because they majority of them have failed. Well, thanks for reminding me of the documentary. I think I sent you a link with this. Yeah. It's called Angst by Scylla Aberdeen. And yeah. it Sheila, Sheila, I guess she pronounces it Aberdeen, but Angst, A-N-G-S-T. And it's where teenagers or children express their anxiety and their worries and they're on camera. So I think every parent should watch that. Well, even, even if you're not a parent, I think it makes us more empathetic to the mm -hmm. challenges all of us are going through. Right. So yeah, all oh, these kids, but you've told me also not to use the word dyslexic when we mm -hmm. had our short conversation, but a student with dyslexia. And I just thought that is just such a supportive and intelligent way to deal with this, right? So we need to see the child as a whole and not separate parts. So that I just, I'm amazed that you can build that trust with a child that's gone through three tutors who's tried, but you have the skill set and well, and the tools, the toolkit you didn't have when you were a fifth grade teacher. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it comes full circle. And that's why I'm trying to pay it forward to all these new teachers going out in the field. And I'm so encouraged, you know, Walsh University has the first master's of dyslexia therapy program in the state. And I get to be part of that. And I, we started the summer semester and I got to meet with these teachers that say, I want this to be my passion. I want to help kids with dyslexia. And I'm so encouraged that teachers put themselves out there to further their education in this field. And I'm fortunate to be part of it. Well, so they're teaching these children and embracing the program that you're offering. But for the individual affected with dyslexia, does it get any easier for them over time? Yeah. So I'm going to use this term and it's, I always say dyslexia is treatable but it's not curable. Okay. So here's the thing. I, a child with dyslexia can learn to read, write, and spell. That little second grader, he, what is it for Boy Scouts? An Eagle, Eagle an Scout. Eagle Scout. He, he went all the way and he was just talented cross country runner. He had all these skills and talents. He's going to go to college. I think he's a senior now. And so he learned how to read, write, and spell successful in multiple areas of his life. He, it was treatable for him. You have to follow what the science tells us, teaches a child with to read, especially a child with dyslexia. That's that structured literacy, what you teach and how you teach it. And it has to be done with fidelity. I didn't do anything, but I followed what my professors taught me how to teach a child with this learning profile. And I did it with fidelity and it works. If you change up what you're doing and you don't, it's kind of like a prescription for metal. If you don't take it three times a day, like your doctor tells you <laughs> and you don't get better, right? 
So they have to, they have to stick with these techniques that you've taught them throughout their life. Exactly. But when I say it's not curable, a brain that is formed and that's their brain, we can strengthen areas that are weak, like that phonological area. And we can teach them what rhyming does and sound manipulation and their understanding of processing the concepts of written language. That's teachable. But their brain is made the way it's made. So it's always going to process that way. So think about it, Barbara. If a lot of times kiddos that have dyslexia remain slow readers. So the the accommodation of extra time is necessary all the way along because it still takes them a while to maybe longer than typical kids to process. So they learn how to read the words but their rate and their prosody and everything maybe doesn't always get to the place where they wouldn't need extra time. And especially on high stakes, like college entrance exams, they might sure. still need that accommodation. So does it ever go away? Even when I, I have, I've, I've had the pleasure of teaching adults with dyslexia and, you know, they'll even say, sometimes they'll m- misread a menu or they'll go up to order something and like, wait a minute, I, because it's just, if they process that still can come back around sometimes of how they process language. So it just never goes away. So Rebecca, what is the best team to assemble to help, as you said, a child or adult make good progress? So who are those people? So we have a system in schools today that is, I can't even tell you how amazing we have come long ways in the field of education and supporting kids. I love hearing that. Oh my goodness. And it's called a multidisciplinary, it's MTSS, multi-team disciplinary team. And so what they, what do we do is we put this tiered support together and the tiered support. So this multidisciplinary team is made up of people like uh, who I want at the table. Let's say I, I was a parent of a child with dyslexia, I want to be on the team. I am my child's advocate. I want to be on the team. I want to have a say of what is going to happen in my the treatment of my child. So the parent, the teacher, the general education teacher. Dyslexia is a continuum. So it's got a spectrum, mild, moderate, severe, and profound. So I may not be a special ed special education student and have dyslexia, I might have dyslexia and not qualify for special ed because it's mild or moderate. Hmm. So I need my general education teacher. If it's severe enough to qualify for special education services, then I need my special education teacher in there as well. So So the gradient of this mm -hmm. is also something to be sensitive to. That is is exactly right. So it's not, not black or white here. No, and general <laughs> education teachers need to know about it because they will have kids. They do have kids with mild or moderate dyslexia in their mm-hmm. class that they can small group and teach in a structured way, even though it's mild or moderate, we still need to teach them how to read to their, you know, their needs. But also on that team, Barbara, I would want a speech language pathologist, a psychologist for the assessment and progress monitoring piece, piece of it. So and sometimes if it's dysgraphia, or I would want my occupational therapist on that team because they work with the handwriting, pencil grip, and 
body position and all of that, that might have OT components or interventions that needed. So those are the ones that I can think of. Oh, and also I like, um, I like the principal involved in the team, a multidisciplinary team, because the principal mm-hmm. is the leader that can kind of, I would say, drive the bus. You can guide sure. this process. I need a leader to say, this is the direction for this kid and be an advocate along with the parent. Very good. Wow. So you can really assemble a strong team. And Rebecca, whenever we, I had children, and I think many people do this today, we read aloud to our kids. Is that helpful early on? Or are we, you know, supporting them too soon? Not, what's the best way to go about this? I mean, yeah, I don't reading know. aloud. Yes, reading aloud is the best, the best, the best. Even I'm telling you, read, 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 read. Oral language, because here's why. Oral language is so it's a it's the foundation of comprehension. When a word or a concept or an understanding, when a kid hears a word on the oral level and they go to the reading and they've heard it before in context they're going to pick it up faster because it's familiar. So what you think about it, you're front-loading language. So you're okay. even front-loading syntax, so grammar. So if they aren't ready in first grade and so forth, they're reading very simple sentences. So sure. when we start using compound complex sentences with conjunctions comp- and clauses and prepositional phrases, they before they can read those, you're building their understanding and practice with that on the oral level. So when they start reading them, they'd like, yeah, I've heard those sentences combined that way before. So it, you're, it's so helpful reading to your kids, reading. I always say, I always like to read one or more grade level above their reading level. Ah, stretch them. Yep. Yes. I Push always them a little bit. For, yeah. I always look for books that were a little talk to your children, talk, talk, talk. When you're going through the grocery store, don't just push them in the cart. Don't just walk with them like this and just look around. Tell them what you're seeing, talk to them, elaborate on language with your children. You're building the oral language foundational base. Now- You mean show them the ketchup that you're putting into the cart? Ketchup. Yeah. Ketchup, that's exactly right. And describe it and talk about the attributes, the color, the size, what we put it on, what we, how we like it, what it tastes like. Just talk to your kids endlessly. That makes for a much richer grocery trip. Wish I would have known that when my kids were younger. Could have been more fun. (laughs) I know. And then encourage my other thing for parents, encourage and support them. And a lot of times what I would suggest is, and I, parents would say, but they don't love to read and they don't love to read. And I say, when they can independently read and they feel empowered with their skills, they may learn to love it. And the, Mm -hmm. but if they don't, you need to listen for why it's so hard. Be a listener to your kids. They're not going to the library corner because it's hard. Well, you know? it sounds like we can be the first diagnosticians for our children to be able to identify this. Well, Rebecca, this has been such a pleasure. And I now have a better understanding. And even personally, I'll be more compassionate when I notice others with reading challenges. So if I hear just three ideas today, 
I learned that 20% of our population experiences dyslexia, but 40% of siblings can if one of them has it. Our schools can help identify it. And a structured literacy approach is essential to enhancing students with dyslexia to achieve success. And as parents, we just need to be supportive. And as adults, we need to understand if we see someone struggling. I'm just so appreciative that you were able to share some of these things. So before we invite Eric back to join us, my last question for you is, how do you keep your well in wealthy? Mm. So here's my philosophy, and I have adult children, and I always tell them this, balance is my word. I, I keep, I work at keeping balance between mind, body, and soul. And if I'm a little heavier in one than the other, I can feel out of balance. And so mm. with my mind, I always am learning. I'm learning and growing always. I've never stopped learning. I always joke that my husband said, when are we going to stop paying tuition? Because I was in <laughs> college for 20 years because I love to learn and I love being a student. And for my body, eating right and exercise is very important to me. I try really hard to keep a healthy body and then my faith. And that is a way that I can, I can keep balance in my life. So I would say that's, that's my answer. Oh, thank you for sharing that with us. And Eric. You're welcome. Yes, this has been amazing. After hearing Rebecca discuss (laughs) dyslexia, what do you have any questions for her or what did you learn? I learned, I learned a lot of new things, the tactile piece of it, the, the sound, hearing the sounds mm-hmm. making a difference. I, I always thought of it as a reading issue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so hearing that was pretty eye-opening to me. But the comment that I have is that Rebecca, I've worked closely with a lot of teachers. Teachers have to have patience, but mm-hmm. people that work with young folks that struggle with dyslexia and other other learning disabilities, they're a special breed. So thank you so much for what you do because to have the patience to understand that this child's not just stubborn, that this child's not just lazy, Mm -hmm. uh, which are a lot of labels that are put on kids when they struggle and and when people don't understand, it's it's amazing. You just to see the patience and the empathy and the love come through a teacher that is sitting side by side with a child who's not happy, (laughs) not doesn't wanna be there and to push them to be better than they are, to understand that they're nothing less than anyone else. It's just, it's just different. It's just different. Love it. That's a good point, Eric. Thank you. And for our audience, I want them to know they can reach out to Rebecca Tolson at her Gmail, which is rtolson, T-O-L-S-O-N, 7783 at gmail.com. So again, that's r tolson7783 at gmail.com. And she also gave us two websites that are very helpful. And I was lucky to review some of that prior to our discussion. Dyslexia, a, well, it's dyslexiada.org. So D-Y-S-L-E-X-I-A-I-D-A.org. And then an easier one, which is understood. Org. So please look at our podcast notes and thank you, Rebecca, for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
Rebecca and Barbara, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. So I, I appreciate all the information today. And of course, our last thank you always goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review. This actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.